Welcome to the Jacob Beer Show. Today, I am honored and have the privilege to talk to Richard Garriott, who Hello. has a lot of achievements, and we'll get into them in just a few minutes. How are you doing today? Excellent, Jacob. Uh, excited to finally you know, connect here in person and uh, uh, get a chance to, to talk about uh, exploration and other, other fun things with you. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. So um, first off, where, where are you calling in today from? Ah, well, I am here at the headquarters of the Explorers Club. I'm actually now the president of the Explorers Club. I, I was just elected this past March, but then the building was closed due to COVID up until just a few weeks ago. So these are this is my office here in the Explorers Club. Of course, I've got lots of rocket models, and that's the Explorers Club flag. And uh, setting up actually for my next expedition is to go down and find the wreck of a ship called the Endurance down underneath the ice in Antarctica. So uh, uh, in any case, this is uh, sort of my Explorers Central uh, here at my office at the Explorer Club. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so before we get into the questions, would you like to tell us, tell um, for our guests who are going to be listening later on, who you are and a little bit about you? Sure, sure. So uh, I'm Richard Garriott, and uh, uh, what brought us together was uh, the subject of exploring. However, I sort of have two careers uh, that have kind of gone on simultaneously. One is I'm one of the earliest and longest term developers of video games, uh, computer games, really. Uh, and I've done that sort of in a parallel uh, life to my exploring activities. So, uh, but to cover the computer games, um, uh, the only game that really predates me is Pong, you know, the, you know, the, the thing where you have paddles that go up and down and bounce a ball back and forth. Uh, I started writing, uh, you know, computer-based role-playing games back in the 1970s, uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, unless you're older than you and a hardcore gamer, you might not remember my Ultima series, uh, but my Ultima series of games, it went on for more than 20 years. In fact, it still goes on today, so it's almost 40 years. Uh, that's where the word avatar, which is obviously pretty common now used in games, uh, and even the whole category of massively multiplayer games comes from my games. Uh, and it was the success that I had in making video games that allowed me to really dig in deep and do exploration activities. And so I'm now actually the only person who has explored the Earth from, from North Pole, every continent down to the South Pole, and has orbited in space and has dove down to its wow. deepest point in the oceans down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Wow. Um... So would you like to share your story about when you were a younger kid uh, before getting to about your space exploration and what that was about and what it was like doing it? Uh, a little bit about yourself and what it was like growing up. You grew up in a big astronaut community. Your father was an astronaut. Yeah, what was exactly that like? right. Yeah, well, you know, of course, you know, every kid, I think, thinks of whatever they do as normal. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it, it is your normal. And so my normal, uh, which only after I went to college did I realize was pretty abnormal, uh, you know, was not only was my, you know, my father was a NASA astronaut, originally hired to go to the moon, but uh, when Nixon canceled the later moon missions, his first mission became uh, Skylab, and then later he flew on the space shuttle. My mother was a professional artist, uh, and if you think about computer games, what I ultimately did as a career, I, I would call computer games the quintessential high-tech art, so I had really the perfect parents to, you know, to feed the mind of a budding video game developer. Uh, but also in the neighborhood that I was living in, which was just a few blocks uh, outside the front gates of NASA, uh, everyone in my neighborhood who wasn't an astronaut, there were lots of astronauts, all my immediate neighbors were astronauts, 
but those between them that weren't astronauts in the, around the neighborhood were almost exclusively people involved in putting people into space. And so for me growing up, space travel wasn't something that some people did. It was something that everybody they knew was involved in in one way or another. <coughs> yeah. Wow. And um, what, of course, after that, you later went on to Texas University, Hookham, by the way. Uh, I know, I was watching the game the other day. Uh, two close games, <laughs> Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. But yep. um, after that, what made you want to pursue something and go uh, more into your explorations and specifically space travel, which ended up getting to do one day? Uh, I believe it was 2010 or 2008. 2008. 2008. Well, yeah, it was a long, hard road to get to space, as you might imagine. It's, it's not, no matter, there's only uh, just over 500 people have still ever been to space, been to orbit. And, um, uh, but when I was a young, you know, barely a teenager, I might, might not have even been a teenager, somewhere between the age of 11 and 13 or so, uh, I was having a regular medical checkup at NASA, which is because the, the NASA doctors were our family doctor. And the doctor said, hey, Richard, you know, good news is you're healthy. Bad news is you've got bad eyesight. You're going to need glasses. And that means you are no longer eligible to be an astronaut. And, uh, and prior to that moment, I had never thought when I grew up, I'm going to be an astronaut. I just assumed everybody went just because everybody I knew did go. And here I was by this doctor very flippantly being sort of kicked out of the club that every adult that I knew was a member of before I was even old enough to think about pursuing it. And so I was, I was honestly quite upset. I was uh, disappointed and sad and then angry and then, uh, you know, try to think of, you know, how can I, how can I fix this? You know, now I really need to go. Now I really want to go. And, uh, you know, I said, look, you know, if, if I can't go by the rules that NASA has set, I'm going to have to make my own space agency. And, you know, and of course, at the age of, you know, 13, you don't really do much about that idea. However, within a couple of years, about the age of 15, I became one of the very first ever developers of video games and was quickly making considerably more income than any of the astronauts that I knew. And so, and, and suddenly they started coming to me to look at investing in their space ideas. And so suddenly I began to see that, hey, I might have be able to now pull this off. And so all of the investing that I did with my, my own money that I was earning in games, I began to directly invest in exploration companies and specifically invest and exploration companies that were would hopefully ultimately take me to space, and uh, and it took me thirty years of doing that kind of work, but ultimately it succeeded. Absolutely, and uh, what was it like after you know you got the chance, or when you heard that you're going to be able to go to space finally? Um, what was that like? Well, you know, it's interesting because I had a number of false starts along the way. So, uh, uh, for example, one of the companies I invested in was called SpaceHab, and SpaceHab was going to build basically a module to go in the back of the shuttle payload bay uh, that they could outfit like a double-decker bus and take 40 civilians at a time. And so that was my first plan. And we actually, the company got built, the company built the module, the company was actually flown numerous times inside the space shuttle to run experiments and things. But then NASA ultimately said, you know, we're just not gonna take civilians. We're just, we're just not in that business. We, you can do experiments, but you can't send people. And I was like, oh. There's, there's first time I missed it. Then 
with space adventures, we arranged with the Russians to be able to take people to go specifically because that was the way I wanted to go. I actually paid for the study with Russia to make it happen. But this was in the year uh, 2000. And uh, you may remember that the year 2000 is when the internet stock uh, bubble hit. And so as a video game developer where all my net worth was tied up in video game companies, when the stock market crashed specifically for dot-com companies, then that means that that meant that my wealth disappeared too. And so we actually had to sell that seat to somebody else. A guy named Dennis Tito went instead of me. And then, and then finally in 2008, which, which is the year that I finally flew, you may remember that in 2008, we had another giant market crash. And so here I am barely able to afford a trip to space paying Russia, you know, many millions of dollars. And as the stock market is crashing and I'm, I'm not even sure I'll be able to make the payments. And so ultimately I did make it barely, but, uh, uh, but, but I almost missed even my third kind of window of opportunity to, to, to go on that. Plus there was a, uh, I'm not even sure you're aware that I had a medical issue that kicked up, that cropped up, uh, that uh, temporarily scrubbed me from the mission. So I, I, I really, uh, uh, I don't know, you're going to be talking to uh, Greg Olson as well. Uh, he'll probably tell you about his as well. We both had, we had one as well. significant medical issues that, that might have uh, prevented us from flying. Wow. So what was it like after you, you know, got the chance that you could go? Of course, you know, even though, you know, you were not the commander of the flight, you started to go through a lot of training. Uh, sort of reminds me of what just happened with the SpaceX Inspiration4 flight, even though that was all from the ground people doing it. Still went through a lot of training. What was that process like for you? Well, first of all, I found the training to be phenomenal. I mean, it was an, an amazing experience just training for it. Because uh, as you know, in the Russian Soyuz, there are no passenger seats. Everyone is involved in the operation of the vehicle. And so I actually found that to be a great benefit was the fact that I got to train for more than a year, uh, passed all the same classes as any other astronaut or cosmonaut, uh, and, um, uh, and was considered by the rest of the crew as a fully trained astronaut or cosmonaut before I flew. It was interesting you should mention the Inspiration4 folks who are of course now good personal friends of mine too. And I was just talking with them uh, just a couple of days ago and uh, about this subject of, you know, I was telling them ahead of time, pay attention to the training because things will always go wrong on a flight. And so, you know, it's actually important even though in theory, the ground controllers are taking care of this, you better be prepared to do whatever you need to do, you know, just in case. And of course they had malfunctions like everybody else has malfunctions. And so it actually really was important, really yeah, important that they had had, that they, you know, they had two pilots on board two, you know, the commander, uh, uh, Jared Isaacman, uh, as well as uh, Dr. Cyan Crocker were both pilots. And so they understood, you know, flight operations well, and they studied those manuals and procedures well, uh, and they were called on to perform procedures. And so, you know, they, uh, and even their medical officer, you know, Haley uh, Arsenault uh, was called on to, to, you know, do some medical work. And so, uh, you know, and Jared was saying, wow, I'm really glad she was there because again, you know, if you don't have people trained in all these disciplines, it's going to make the outcomes much more difficult. Absolutely. And actually, when I was watching the beginning of the Inspiration4 documentary, Jared Eisman actually mentioned your launch and how he was there for it in 2008. So I remember right. that. So, yeah, no, in fact, that's actually that's actually one of the reasons he kindly has included me in some of these other things, too, is because I was a, a part of, you know, kind of what kicked him off on this. Awesome. Uh, so now getting back to your space flight, <laughs> um, what is it like, I guess, and some of the training, uh, of course, you have to go through the full amount of training as a cosmonaut, as a astronaut. 
what is it like? Well, what, what's interesting is, um, you know, there's a there's a few key aspects to space travel that I think are interesting to talk about. You know, one of them is uh, communication. You know, you if you're going to communicate with the Earth, you're going to do it with radio waves, with radio, with literal radios. And uh, and it turns out that if you want to operate an amateur radio station here on Earth, you can. You have to go on the internet and you know and do some work for something called a ham radio operator's license. That's an amateur radio uh, operator, and and that just teaches you some basics about you know, wavelength and frequency and you know different uh, channels and the way the radio works. And so if you can if you want to operate the radios on a spacecraft, you basically have to learn those same things. And so. What I tell people is that if you can get a ham radio license, which pretty much anybody can with a few days of work on the internet, then you can handle communications from space. And then similarly, if you, for example, get a scuba diving license, which you know, most adults who wish to can you know, go get a scuba diving license. And what you learn when you take, get a, you know, take a class in scuba diving is you learn about the partial pressure of gases. And so for example, you learn that if you go quickly into low pressure, you can get the bends when bubbles come out in your blood. If you go too low in pressure, you can actually pass out due to lack of oxygen, of course. But also there's problems if you increase the pressure. You know, if you go more than a couple of atmospheres positive in pressure, even uh, nitrogen becomes uh, a, a narcotic, kind of makes you loopy, and eventually oxygen even becomes toxic. And so it's really important to keep the gas percentages balanced, as well as keep the pressure close to one atmosphere. And, and it turns out when you're managing the life support on, a, on, a, on a, a spacecraft or for example, a submarine or scuba diving, those are all the same thing. And so if you can go learn to get a scuba license, then you can handle the life support on a rocket. And, but anyway, the, the point is every subject is sort of like this. The, the only thing that I would find hard was trying to learn the Russian language because on the Soyuz, all the instruments were purely in Russian, the manuals purely in Russian and the commands from mission control purely in Russian. And so, and so, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, but that was the really, that was the hard part. That was the work. <coughs> Everything about learning how to fly the spacecraft and operate safely was, it was a great pleasure. Wow. And um, of course, I actually just, of course, before I interviewed earlier today, looked at the video of how the Soyuz rocket works. Uh, it's a lot different, of course, compared to the space shuttle or even other rockets that we've used in the past. Um, so what was it like, I guess? Um, I watched a video, of course, when you go in there, it's it's different. Um, it's not like the Dragon thing right now where they have where you can look out the window from takeoff and the seat, you're covered in something and then it, the stages, of course, go away. But, the, but like you can't see outside when you're taking off or anything like that. So what is that like? And what was it like strapping your seat? And, and I looked at some photos Holy cows are tied in there. What is that? Oh, mean? yeah. Up until I went down in the submarine to the Mariana Trench, it was by far the smallest thing I'd ever been in as a vehicle. Well, I've been in, but now I've been in one smaller with the submarine. But um, uh, yeah, I would say one of the most interesting things about being in it for a launch, in addition to the cramped space, is um, how different it is from your, at least in your impression of a US launch. You know, in the United States, we do a countdown from 10. And you know, uh, once you get to zero, the engines go to full throttle, and only after they have reached full throttle and the engines are considered stable and safe, do they release the vehicle with some explosive bolt shattering, 
And then the vehicle, you know, leaps into the air. I mean, at maximum acceleration instantaneously. And so you would, you know, you'd be pushed back to your seat quickly. Well, on the Russians, that Soyuz rocket is not sitting on a pad. It's actually being held by a couple of clamps, uh, you know, just above its center of gravity. And so as the engines throttle up, as soon as the engines throttle, uh, the thrust is greater than the mass of the rocket, it will begin to move upward, but only very, very, very slightly. And then the, uh, those collars just fall away with gravity. There's, there's counterweights on them to make them just kind of move away. And, and so the vehicle accelerates. The huh, sorry? Incorrect my wrong, but you can actually see it from the ground when they come off. You can, you can see them move out. But the rocket is still barely moving at that moment. It's moving, but only very slightly. And then the engines continue to throttle up. And so then it slowly accelerates faster and faster. So the moment that you transition from sitting still to moving is imperceptible. You actually can't tell that it's begun to move. And so because it's so gentle. And so here you are on the inside. Imagine yourself on the inside. You're going through the checklist and you're getting down and you get to the point where the engine's light and you're going like, okay, well, maybe I should feel the rumble or hear the rumble, but you don't because it's so far below you. And it's a it's a very smooth engine. So the first time you've ever sat on an operational engine is launch day. And so you, 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 you expect to feel something, but you can't stop to go like, hey, why don't I see something? Because you're in the middle of a checklist, right? So you, you continue to the next line item on the checklist, and that is PUSK, which means launch, which means you have started to move. And again, you're going, wow, I, I, I haven't heard anything. I haven't felt anything. I don't perceive any motion, but supposedly we're moving. And so you're in your mind's eye, you're kind of going like, wow, I sure hope this is going well because I, I can't really tell. And my job at this time is I have all the emergency procedures. And so I'm following along on the normal checklist while keeping open the emergency procedures in case it's not going well. So the, for, in my mind's eye, I'm sort of glancing back and forth now to make sure I'm on the right page because I'm, you know, it's possible this is not you know, moving as expected because I have no uh, physiological cues yet that the thing is moving. Fortunately, by the time you turn the page and continue down some of these other movements, you begin to feel the onset of G-forces. And so suddenly you begin to see, feel more and more pressure pushing you deeper and deeper into that seat. And that increase in pressure gets higher and higher and higher and higher over a period of about two minutes, constantly gaining pressure as it gets, as it accelerates faster and faster and faster. And so by then, you, of course, you know, not only are you clearly moving, but you're moving very fast because you're, you're the acceleration, you know, which is, you know, four or five Gs of acceleration um, is now moving you very, very quickly. And then you can also see the gauges beginning to, you know, spin <laughs> as you pick up velocity and altitude. Wow. And what is it like after you're out of the atmosphere and you're in space, you're in orbit? What is that like? Uh, then, of course, I believe you can see out because, you know, you're outside of it. And then it takes, I know, a few days to catch up to the space station. What is that process like? Uh, of course, I know, I believe then you can unbuckle yourself, but you're still, there's one section above you, which you'll later climb out of to get into the space station, but still there's not a lot of space and you're in there for a few days or until you get yeah. two days until you get to the space station. What is yeah. that like? Is there a restroom? Where do you sleep at night? Because <laughs> for the first two days, you're away. Yeah, all That's great there. questions. Yeah, yeah, you know, well, as you as you noted earlier, you know, on the launch pad, there's a cowling covering the windows. So you can't see out. 
And by the time that is removed, you're already in the blackness of space. So there's still nothing to see out the window. And so the first time you actually see something out the window is after the engines turn off. And so when the engines shut off, you're now weightless in space. You go immediately from four and a half Gs to zero Gs. The vehicle just sort of freely tumbles for a little while until they turn on stabilization. And as it tumbles, you look out the window and you get your first beautiful view down at the earth. And you might think at this point that my thinking would be, ta-da, I made it to space after all these years and look at the beautiful view out the window. Uh, but in fact, my first thought was, wow, we're not nearly as high up as I expected to perceive us being. I sure hope we're in a perfectly circular orbit or we might be re-entering again. And so I'm still, again, looking at those emergency procedures, just trying to make sure that we are exactly where you know, we're supposed to be. And so I, I actually wait until the vehicle has tumbled a couple of times and the earth has come by my window a couple of times before I go, okay, no gauges are, you know, no alarms are going off. The view uh, is stable out my window. Uh, clearly we've made it to orbit and now I can relax and now I can take it in. And now I'm kind of relaxed and excited about the trip. Wow. And then is there a restroom? Uh, I mean, I believe there has to be a restroom. <clears throat> there there is. Like, well, you are in a space rocket until you get to the space station. What is that like? Yes, and so uh, you know the descent module where the three of you sit is so small that when you're sitting in your seat, your head is against one wall and your heels are against your butt and your toes are against the other wall. And so it's really only as far across as you know your head to you know six inches past your your backside. And so it and and you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with your crewmates. And even if I was sitting in the center seat, you could touch both outer windows easily. And the, you know, that there's a hatch, uh, you're, you're lying on your back really, but there's a hatch easily within reach above you if you're in the center seat and your knees are against the control console. So there is really not extra. The only play, the only way you could even cram another person in here is to just lie them across the laps of the three people that were in there first. And so it is a really compact space. But once you're in orbit, you can open the hatch that's just above you and you go to a second chamber that's only really about the same size again. So it's a little bit bigger than the descent module, but not much. But now you have basically two modules of space. And so up in that upper module is where there's food stored and there's a little fold down like tray that you can have as a kitchen table for eating a meal or two. And tucked away in the corner is the toilet, which is really just a, uh, a vacuum hose hooked over to a double receptacle that you kind of straddle like you might you know, imagine the, holding a Western saddle by the saddle horn <laughs> and putting that saddle under your body. And there's a receptacle for urine and a receptacle for feces. And frankly, you really hope you don't have to use it very often because it's not very, uh, uh, it's, it's not very uh, private. And uh, if you, you know, just even going through the imagination of how it might work, you're going like, that's not gonna work very well. It's gonna be a mess. And so most people do their very best not to uh, need to use their facilities much and most people end up do needing to urinate during this two day period, but almost no one, uh, in fact, no one that I know of ever uses the uh, solid waste disposal aspects of this uh, vehicle. Wow. And then at nighttime in under soil use, where do you sleep? And do you go back to your seat? Well, people, can, the, the people change the, you know, make up their own mind. And so in our case, two of us slept up top in the bigger space. And one, uh, the flight engineer, Mike Fink, in our case, slept downstairs, you know, or below uh, in the, uh, in the uh, descent module in his seat. And so, uh, you, can, you know, there's enough room. We could, 
if we if we'd all three tried to stay in our seat, I think it would have felt a little crowded and bumping elbows. Uh, so I think one person at least for sure would always go up top. But in our case, two of us went up top, one stayed below. Awesome. And after that, you ended up getting to the space station. What was that procedure like? Well, so you know, once you dock with the ISS, and this is you know two objects moving seventeen thousand miles an hour in orbit. And by the way, docking is a lot harder than most people think. You might think that all you got to do is chase up to it and you know line up and push together, but it turns out that's not the way it works because if you are if you're both traveling around the Earth, one following the other, and the vehicle trying to dock pushes up to try to dock, you're actually increasing your orbital speed. You're 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 now going faster to try to catch up to the space station, but going faster means that your orbit will be higher. And so as you push to dock, you actually go up in space. And if what you do is you aim down and try to push again, you're actually still increasing your velocity. And so people who try to dock manually often end up doing this and having collisions and doing all kinds of bad things. Uh, and so it's interesting that as you push forward, you have to simultaneously push down. And so, uh, and, and not tilt down, but translate down. And so it's actually a very hard thing to do because your vehicle is trying to get back up to what it thinks is the proper orbit based on your current velocity. And so, uh, uh, so docking is tricky, but it's done on the Russian side. It does done with a computer, so that uh, that helps. Uh, and uh, but then once you enter the space station, you go from being this cramped environment to being in an incredibly open environment. It's the the space station is as big as a football field. It's like uh, fifteen or twenty school buses docked to each other. Uh, with the full volume of the school buses, uh, but you still have to, you know, float up and down and sideways through the stack to get to the various uh, uh, laboratories or other spaces that you might want to spend some time. And what was it like once you got to the space station? What was it like um, getting to have fun, do exper doing experiments, and sleeping? You know, what was that all like? And then another question just to follow up to that is, did you sleep more in space or did you feel like you needed more sleep in space or did you feel like you mm. could uh go better on less sleep even well almost everything about being in space is phenomenal so floating around you know giddily like superman you know is uh is a constant pleasure looking out the window at the beautiful earth is a inspirational and constant pleasure um but there are two things that are not better in space than they are on the ground one is food uh, 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 and well, I would say three things: food, uh, personal hygiene, you know, using the bathroom and trying to wash, brush your teeth and wash your face, uh, and sleeping. And so, uh, uh, you know, the, the, your your sense of taste has changed a lot. Plus, the food that's up there for you is basically military rations. You know, things you can store without refrigeration for a year. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you imagine going through your you know pantry and refrigerator. Fresh food is usually the one you would prefer over the canned beans that have been on the shelf for a year or two. And uh, but in but in space, you're pretty much eating the you know the canned and bagged you know long-term preservation stuff all the time. So it's just not particularly inspirational generally. And uh, uh, and the toilet facilities on board the space station are better, but not much better than the one at the Soyuz. So I would still say that's a challenge. Uh, and then sleeping. What's interesting is some people actually find it really pleasant to sleep in space because all you got to do is relax and there's not going to be any pressure points on you. It's uh, you can literally just float there and uh, uh, you got to remember to at least tie a shoelace to the wall or something or the air conditioning flow rate will take you over to the air conditioning intake vent overnight. 
Um, but uh, a lot of people find that to be very comfortable. I am a face down sleeper. And so I sleep face down on a very thin pillow and like to have heavier blankets over me. And so I, I didn't find it was very comfortable at all to you know, try to find a position that felt you know, comfortable for me to go to sleep. And, uh, 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 and that's actually super common. A lot of people have the same problem I did. So, um, uh, so I did not sleep very well at all. Plus you're super excited. Plus you've got this thing called fluid shift, which is making you feel like you got a head cold and uh, all that added up to me to where you know, I was pretty sleep deprived by uh, the end of two weeks when it was time to come home. So did you ever not sleep any nights when you were in space? Well, no, I think I did fall asleep, but just not much. I mean, I, I would lie there in a quasi-sleep state. I mean, the problem was that, you know, at 6 a.m. every morning, Greenwich Mean Time, uh, you know, the day began and everybody gets up, gets their breakfast and starts their day of activities. So you can't really just sort of wait till you finally exhaust yourself to fall asleep. You, have, you really need to sleep now. And so, um, uh, but I had, I had difficulty with it. Interesting. And what was your favorite thing you got to do while you were in the space station? Uh, well, the, uh, uh, almost anything you do that involves physically moving around in space is, uh, is exciting. And whether that's playing with your food, playing with water, you know, tossing balls back and forth with your friends and trying to do zero G juggling that we did. Um, uh, but really by far the most interesting thing at all, frankly, is just staring out the window at the earth. The, uh, the view of the earth is truly profound. Uh, and what's interesting about that is why? Because I mean, if you go to an IMAX movie about like there's some great Hubble Space Telescope repair missions that were shot, you know, with uh, uh, IMAX uh, cap you know, capabilities, that the view on screen during an IMAX presentation is at least as good as I got, you know, by eye, you know, when looking from space. But there's something about being there and being in that isolated environment and seeing it firsthand and having it move past you at such a rate that you know you you're both compelled to look because it's so interesting but it's also fleeting because it's going to go away in just a moment so you really need to look now because you won't see it ever again and so you're just captivated to stare out the window at the earth and, and it feels like you're just passive knowledge about how all the large-scale systems of the earth work is just pouring in your mind just by paying attention and whether that's weather or tectonic plate movement or Erosion by wind and water, you know, all those things just get, you know, better and better just by uh, paying attention. Wow. And then um, what was it like coming back down from the space station back into Earth? What was that process like, reentry? Well, the, um, the reentry itself is pretty amazing. Well, well, first, you know, while it takes you two days to get up and dock with the space station, it only takes you a few hours to undock and then come all the way down to the ground. But And even in that short couple of hours, or a few hours, the first two of those hours are just un disconnecting from the space station. You release some latches, and there's some springs under compression that push you backwards. And they just let you, you just let yourself drift backwards for a couple of hours. And you do that so that when you, so that you don't turn on your thrusters and spray the space station with you know, debris from your thrusters. And so you just wait until you drift it away before you power up. And once you do power up the vehicle and you know, uh, use your main engine to slow down, you are now going to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. So you're, you're, once you're going anything less than 17,210 miles an hour, you are going to fall to the ground. 
And so you, you don't have to slow down very much. You just burn the engines for a few seconds and, uh, uh, and then you will re-enter. So after that, as you're falling down, you eject the habitation module, you eject the instrument compartment, you eject a periscope you had, uh, and then only the descent module re-enters the, Earth, the Earth's atmosphere. And that's because it occurred from Mars, but there's also a few other things that come down, but they're all on a different cycle so that it doesn't create a crash when you land, correct? All those other pieces actually burn up completely before they, they, don't, they don't actually make it to the ground. Oh, uh, so they, uh, they're all designed specifically, so they will burn up. But you're, but you're still correct that you don't want to, even during the beginning of reentry, you don't want to bang into them. And so, yes, you, you release them when you are in very specific orientations, and they are released in very specific directions to make sure that you know you don't you know collide uh, during reentry. Interesting. And then what was it like when you got back down? What was what did it feel like you know after you're in because you were almost up there for two weeks? What is it like when you go from that to then being? Oh, I can't well, float. <laughs> yeah. Well, so don't forget you're still when you're coming in the reentry, you go from zero gravity up through again four and a half g's or so during most of the reentry. And the finale is an actual impact on the ground. So while well, we splash down a lot of US vehicles in Russia, they just land pretty hard right on the ground. And so uh, uh, it's like being in a car crash, basically. And, uh, but you're strapped in tight to the seat and the seats are made to you know, crush uh, uh, in a way that you know, prevents it from being hazardous, uh, but still notable. Uh, but then you're right that as you, once you get up, your, your body is now, has really lost its ability to either command muscles needed for, for walking around in 1G and or your inner ear balance system hasn't had gravity to help it orient for two weeks. And so it's sort of, it's no longer a gravity detector. It's now an accelerometer. And so uh, once you're back on the ground, if you close your eyes, for example, put your head back, you feel like you're spinning around and around. And so it makes it actually really hard to go to sleep again. Uh, but, uh, but also just, uh, uh, you know, this whole, uh, adaption, you know, it, it took, it took you about three days to adapt to being in zero G. It takes you about three days to readapt to being in gravity. Wow. And, uh, of course, just getting the next topic real quick, cause I won't take up too much of your time or anything. Um, what was it like? The other one that you did that really, st that stuck out to me was, um, when you got to go down to Mariana Trench, you were in something even smaller. What was that like? And, you know, uh, after I'll ask you what was more intense between the two, but what was that process like? I mean, I can't imagine being in something that small and just feeling like there's pressure coming in after you constantly as you're going down there and what that feeling is like. So what is it like? The experience? Yeah. So March 1st of this year, I went down to the Mariana Trench in a submersible called Limiting Factor. Uh, that was actually built by our Explorers Club medalist by a person by the name of Victor Vescova, who built this submarine. Uh, and it's the first submarine that has the capability of making repeated full ocean depth dives. Pr prior to this machine, only two machines had ever gone that deep before once each. So only three people had ever gone down to this depth in history uh, prior to this machine. And, uh, uh, and, and you're right that it goes down you know, 10,000 925 meters. That is more than a thousand atmospheres of pressure. And, uh, and so the, you know, it's about a uh, four or five inch thick titanium hull 
And despite it being a perfect sphere of titanium, it is still crushed by about a half a centimeter due to that immense pressure. And, but, but if you take the pressure away for just a minute, just talk about the way the machine operates, it actually still operates about the same as a spacecraft. You know, you're still using radios. In this case, it's acoustic radios instead of radio wave radios. Uh, the, uh, uh, the life support is almost exactly the same. You have to scrub CO2, you have to add back oxygen, manage the total pressure. Um, the, uh, you know, uh, almost all of the, you know, kind of training regiment for operations would feel very similar to what it does for space. But what's interesting is that in space, you only have to hold in one atmosphere and to go deep, you have to hold out a thousand atmospheres. And so the, the, the hull thickness on a spacecraft is actually very thin. It's not much more than a you know, soda pop can. Uh, but uh, the hull thickness on the, the limiting factor, of course, was like I said, it's you know, four or five inches. And so it's just a, an enormous difference in that sense. Um, and, the, and the dive profile to go down to the bottom of the Marion Trench is, you know, uh, you, know it's a, you take a very large research vessel out there carrying the submarine. Uh, it's all operates off of electrical battery packs. You climb into a sphere that's only about 1.4 meters. You know, so if I just slide my my chair back, you know, it's about this big in a sphere for two people. So you're two people, you know, hunched over inside this little sphere, and the windows are only about this big around on the inside, and then they're about you know two feet around on the outside. And the reason why it's a big wedge is because again, that pressure is going to push that window into the submarine. And so even with that almost flat, it seems like spread from the outside window to the inside window, that window still gets compressed and shoved into the submarine by, again, another about a half a centimeter. And so uh, uh, it is a phenomenal amount of pressure that this thing has to sur survive through. Um, but then the dive profile, once you are on board and you uh, uh, blow out some ballast tanks, so you become negatively buoyant, uh, the submarine begins to sink down toward the bottom. And it, it takes about four hours, though, for it to fall from the surface of the ocean to the seafloor. Then you have about four hours of battery time to explore around the bottom with. Uh, then you drop some weights, uh, and uh, which makes you, again, positively uh, buoyant. And it takes about four hours to return all the way back up to the surface. So a 12-hour day, pretty much. Yeah. And in this case, there is no bathroom. And so uh, that is something that you pay very close attention to is how little to eat, how little can you eat and drink basically the entire day before to make sure you don't have the need of use um, this day. Interesting. So then what, what were some things that you got to see when you were down there? Uh, I'm sure you saw octopus. Well, no, actually, I didn't see an octopus. No, at this depth, uh, there, is, there is a lot of life down there, but it's very exotic life. So uh, one of the things you see... Uh, probably the most common thing we see uh, are these little creatures called amphipods. And these amphipods are uh, descriptively, I would describe them as headless shrimp. It almost looks like the body of a shrimp. Uh, and then where the head should be is sort of just a blunted, rounded off uh, nose end. Uh, and again, that's because um, down here at this depth, they do, there's, there's no light, so they don't really need eyes. Uh, and so they're really smelling their way through their environment at this depth. Uh, and in fact, the way we see them is we, we add bait to some landers we send down first. <coughs> and those, uh, um, that bait attracts these guys. And you can watch them coming to eat the bait since they can't see it. You know, they, 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 they swim by through the smell cloud of the bait, then turn around and 
are going to do a, a vector that's a little bit better and kind of miss it again, then they might miss it again. And they slowly triangulate it until they finally find the, the piece of food that we've dropped down there. And so uh, it's actually quite interesting to see uh, these amphipods. We saw uh, some little squid-like creatures, little transparent squid-like creatures, that are actually relatives of the sea cucumber. Uh, and uh, we saw some uh, kind of tube worm type of filter feeding creatures down there on some of the rocks. Uh, and of course, we saw plenty of human trash. Ooh, <laughs> that's probably the worst part of it. Um, so then after you came back up, of course, what would you say was the best thing that you saw while you were down there? Well, just being down there was honestly the, the, the best part. I mean, uh, as interesting as the amphipods and uh, the uh, little squid-like uh, relatives of the, uh, of the sea cucumber, uh, it was really just being in that physical and, and alien and hostile environment. Um, you know, and, and, and that's also why, you know, here on, on the physical, on the surface of the earth, I'm a big fan of going to Antarctica, where I'll be going again here this winter. And, uh, and, the, uh, uh, and, the, and one of the main reasons I really like it is, again, it's because it's, uh, it's just such an, a truly alien environment. Interesting. And I just have two quick questions. I know we sort of went over my yeah, bad. No um, what was more intense between the two, space or going down there? And as, I guess an intense, I don't mean which one was better or anything. I would mean like, you know, what were you a little bit more nervous about? <laughs> uh, well, statistically, there has never been a fatality in a deep submersible. So I actually felt very safe in the submersible. Although, by the way, I felt pretty safe in the space capsule too, because the Soyuz has a 40 year safety track record now. They had a couple of fatalities, you know, in the very beginning of the Soyuz program, but otherwise every crew uh, uh, in the, basically all, the, all of my lifetime, you know, has, has at least survived. And, uh, and so that's a, a pretty good safety track record too. But, but, but uh, with the thing that I really liked about the submersible is because there's only a you know a team of forty or fifty of us involved in the entire expedition, we can get involved in every aspect of the expedition. You know, we, me, and my friend uh, Mike Dubno, another fellow explorer that were on this expedition together. <clears throat> you know, we got involved in literally disassembling and reassembling a whole experiments that were being sent down either on the submarine or on these landers that we put down. And we were in the machine shop, you know, repairing and building the whole expedition. In the case of space. There's tens of thousands of people involved, and you have a very small part to play, a, a very cool part to be able to take the ride, but but you're not going to disassemble the rocket, you know, uh, in favor of the uh, experts who might you know turn the bolts on the on the hardware. And so I really enjoyed getting involved in the submarine the submarine operations. Interesting. And then just one last final question I have is, if you were to go up to space again someday or something. Or if you could pick any um, rocket or type of aircraft that's been to space in the past or current, which one would you do? Would you go on a Soyuz again? Would you go uh, in a Dragon Falcon, which is with SpaceX, of course? If the space shuttle was still around, would you go on that? What would you want to go on? Oh, interesting. So first, I will go back to space. So that's, uh, I think, very much assured. And uh, But uh, what's interesting is, uh, there's really only one vehicle I probably wouldn't elect to ride on since I've now been. I, I, since I've now been, I'm more safety conscious. <clears throat> and so if the shuttle was still flying, I probably wouldn't fly on it because it really was too dangerous. It had a one out of 70 chance 
of killing the crew, and that's a pretty high chance. Um, uh, that being said, uh, you know, if I was going to fly today, uh, I absolutely would fly on SpaceX uh, on the Dragon. Uh, but um, I'm actually holding out. The thing I'm going to hold out for is Starship. So I'm, you know, if I, you know, it, it, it's still going to be, you know, to, to go, for example, to Mars is never going to be cheap, or at least not in my lifetime. It's not yet going to be cheap. Or and in my so, lifetime, probably. Which I'm. Well, no, your yours it might. Yeah, I think yours it might because again, don't forget. Shuttle was peak danger and cost at about $200 million a person or more and one out of 70 chance of death. Uh, you know, the Soyuz and the current SpaceX vehicle are a couple of tens of millions per person uh, and very much safer, you know, probably one out of a thousand chance of death. Starship, Elon thinks you can get Starship to even do, you know, point to point on the Earth or the moon and back. Ultimately, not, not these first flights, but, you know, in 10 years, he thinks you get it down to a hundred or two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars per seat. Which and is now, would... don't forget, we've gone from two or three hundred million to two or three hundred thousand. Wow. And that's just within a decade. And uh, and eventually, because of the think about the energy costs as we get built to the kind of the next the follow-on generations, it's possible that we'll get down into you know another order of magnitude below that. But even at, let's call it $300,000, if for $300,000 or $500,000, you could go live on Mars, think about what this means to the people who, who left Europe to come settle in the Americas. They would sell their homes and their businesses and their cars and borrow money from their friends and family and neighbors in order to come over and take an ax and make a log cabin. And so, you know, they, would, they were definitely taking bigger risks in the sense of their total net worth or their ability to earn money through their lifetime to come across an ocean. And so when we set up, when, when, when we get to the point, which will be in your lifetime, uh, that we can take people back and forth to Mars, you know, I think that if that's really what you wanna do, if you would be willing to you know, take whatever your career earnings are, and because when you go to Mars, what you can earn is pretty much irrelevant, right? It's gonna, there's not gonna be enough buying and selling of ice cream, candy, and houses to, uh, to, to feel like you need to have any particular amount of wealth when you're there. When you're there, it's going to be, hey, what useful thing can you do for the community? And let's all do it together to make sure we all survive, much less thrive. And so if you want to go become one of those people and you're willing to give away your earthly possessions uh, and earthly future possessions, then, you know, I'll bet you could afford it. Wow. And, you know, another thing I would say is with that, it seems like a lot of money. But again, I mean, you're seeing a lot of people already. I think it was close to over a thousand signed up with the Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. I just had a guy on who went on the Blue Origin flight last week with William Shatner. He came on and did this Instagram live with me a week before. So, you know, it's going to be more accessible and, you know. Yeah, and the people, price is going to come down. People and, call you know, me crazy, but I say at school, we are going to space in our generation. All of us get to go to the space station, maybe or maybe not. All of us get to go to Mars, maybe or maybe not. But we will all get to experience a few minutes and weightlessness by 2050, I believe. I agree with you completely. So, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Any advice for people? Uh, you know, this could be in the well, royal world. Well, I think you're on the right world. track with saying that, you know, the, the opportunity will be there. It, it, it sort of is now. It's just, it's still really hard, but it's getting easier and easier. You know, when I went, you know, before I went, 10 years before I went, there were no private citizens who went. You know, in the decade that I went, seven of us total went. In this coming decade, or in the decade we're in right now, There's we already have more people flying privately, both orbital and suborbital, than have ever been to, than, than fly uh, professionally. 
And that trend line is going to continue and the price is going to continue coming down. The safety is going to continue coming up. And so when people go like, ah, oh, this is all a bunch of wealthy yahoos taking themselves to space. Well, yeah, well, that was the same thing was true for the early airplanes. The same thing was true for the early transatlantic voyages. You know, so get over the fact that it's somebody who can afford to pay a bigger ticket than you can today and put your sights on that if that's what you want to do, start thinking, okay, well, what is the price that I'm going to need it to be at? Can I imagine that price coming into being? And when that price is ready for me, make sure I'm prepared to be able to go. Make sure I have the skill set <laughs> or the money or whatever it takes to be able to be uh, desired to be on that uh, on that expedition. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you.